morning just by talking about Tradition 11 for a minute, which reads like this. Our relations with the general public should be characterized by personal anonymity. We think AA ought to avoid sensational advertising. Our names and pictures as AA members ought not be broadcast, filmed, or publicly printed. Our public relations should be guided by the principle of attraction rather than promotion. There is never need to praise ourselves. We feel it better to let our friends recommend us. Interesting principle. Um, this is one of those things that, that goes through a lot of uh, heated discussion sometimes in meetings. And I think there are a lot of people who get very confused about anonymity. At what level does anonymity exist? The way the short form of the step reads is our public relations policy is based on attraction rather than promotion. We need always maintain personal anonymity at the level of press, radio, films, and TV. General public. I've heard people talk, you know, like one drunk talking to another, and one drunk says to the other, well, I don't want to break my anonymity, but I am a member of the program. <laughs> and I always look around the room to see where there's press, radio, films, and TV. You know, I... Uh, if press, radio, films, and TV aren't in the room, you are not great. But anonymity is at the general level, you know. Well, what about if people know I'm an alcoholic? Uh, most folks in my neighborhood knew. <laughs> <laughs> my being an alcoholic is not anonymous. My being a member of this group is anonymous. Um, and it becomes kind of delicate. I think the problem for this, well, there are a couple of reasons. Number one, one of the first reasons for anonymity <clears throat> was to protect early members from being overwhelmed by the need. When you had, a, when, when the Jack Alexander article appeared in the Saturday Evening Post, zillions of letters went to New York and that little central office there to consist of three typewriters and a secretary uh, was just overwhelmed. And so part of it was for protecting members from having this incredible number of drunks pound down the door saying, help me now, you know. But there's another reason for the anonymity, too, and that is if everyone knew that Tom Weston was a member of Alcoholics Anonymous and I'm identified with AA on public billboards, Tom Weston got sober and Alcoholics Anonymous, and then they find me one morning drinking a little styrofoam, you know. Um, and Sterno, well, they might conclude that AA doesn't look that's why we don't do a lot of, of, she got sober in AA. It, it's just dangerous because people confuse principles and personalities all the time. So it, it really is an attraction, uh, a principle of anonymity at the group level so that people can, can it works on several levels. Number one, you're safe in here. You know, the people in here know you're a drunk. <laughs> I mean, uh, that's, it's with the general public that we have to be a little careful. And then some of us really do act like creeps. There was a, in Los Angeles, if you go to meetings there, you'd, I'd maybe here too in Vegas, you bump into celebrities at meetings. And uh, one celebrity had just started going to meetings, Liza M. And uh, uh, at one meeting, they lined up for her autograph. <coughs> you know? I mean, I, I, I would 
go out and have a nice cup of gin, you know. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's an awful thing. I mean, it's kind of, everyone has the right to come in with the problem. And, and some people get so nervous about this, they don't want anyone to know um, that they have to hide themselves in select groups. So you have some groups only for airline pilots, you know, uh, some groups only for doctors. There are some groups only for priests. You know, they're so nervous about it. It's just crazy. So I, I am one of the believers in the fact that, um, you know, I don't mind. The fact that I'm a drunk, I mean, is pretty public knowledge. I also let folks know, without press, radio, films, and TV, that I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And when I've had to be, um, uh, when I've been quoted in like a newspaper or something, they either do not identify me with full name or, or they'll refer to I got sober with a group of friends in 12 steps, you know, which people in the know know. Ah, code word, you know. <laughs> Probably a secret member of our group. Okay. Um, someone, this is a little scattered to start off with, but some folks, you know, they, talking about the fifth step, some people uh, are in the practice of, of doing a lot of fifth steps. You know, one a year, you know, one every month. Um, I'm not, I'm not, I think a fifth step is a biggie. And I think it's, um, you know, you do it once or you do it maybe occasionally, you know, like every 10 years. Uh, but I don't think it is a maintenance step. I think, I think personal inventory, after you've done a fifth step, personal inventory falls into step 10. We continue to take personal inventory and when you're wrong, you promptly admit it. I'll talk about that one in the second hour this morning. But I find some folks, there's a fellow in Marin County, uh, Marin County is a very strange place. Um, anyway, he's a bit of a junkie, and uh, he's taken, he's been sober for two years, and he's taken five fifth steps. And I, and he was in the process of another one, and wanted to know if I would hear it, you know, and I uh, found out a little about it, and wanted to know why. And what he wants, when he's done with his fifth step, he wants to feel very, very high. And he's done four fifth steps and hasn't felt high. So he's concluded that he hasn't done it right. Do you think he's a junkie? <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm the kind of junkie, by the way, who takes vitamins and waits to feel them. Okay? <laughs> That's one of the signs where we have a little pill problem. Uh, maybe I should take a little more C, you know? <laughs> um, <laughs> And, and this guy is addicted to the high, and he, and I told him, I said, the fifth step doesn't guarantee you a high, you know? Uh, the fifth step guarantees that if you do this to the best of your ability, you won't have to drink or use today. A lot of us come into the fellowship, um, if you're, well, a lot of us, let me talk about me. Uh, when I came into the fellowship, I lived my life at two speeds. There were only two speeds that were real. One was 90 miles an hour, and the other was catatonic. And anything in the middle wasn't real. Okay. And wasting time, wasting time, waiting for the up or the down, you know. And I've had to learn that probably 5% of life is ecstasy and another 5% of life may be ecstasy. And, you know, what is that, 5 and 5 and 10? 90% of life is in between. And if I was going to get sober and learn to live a sober life, I had to learn to live in the 90%. I had to start learning how to go 25 miles an hour, 15 miles an hour, 55, let's push it. Um, but that was, that was what I had to learn to do. Um, 
And I, I think that's what many of us have to learn to do. Slowing down some. On allergies, I think, and this is part of feeling good too, I, I think that uh, you can be allergic to one thing, you can be allergic to lots of things. And if, I think we are allergic to alcohol. Um, therefore, you know, if, if you haven't had a drink in two years and you still feel awful, physically awful, emotionally wiped out, you might want to take a look at sugar. Maybe I'm just suggesting. <laughs> you might want to take a look at caffeine. And you might want to take a look at nicotine. You know, see, in AA, we kind of say, well, we're against all drugs except sugar, caffeine, and nicotine. They're great for you, you know? Have a lot of those and you'll be well. Well, um, they even have that wonderful little thing in the book here where they, I, I, I won't be able to find it now, but they say they're giving suggestions on, on how to stay sober. He says, some of us found out by eating 430 Hershey bars, we feel real good, you know? <laughs> well, um, I think that's kind of interesting. You know, always keep chocolate in the house. Well. Uh, I find if I do a lot of that, I get so depressed and hungover that I think suicide's a step up. And so I have to be real aware of that. And I've had to consequently to feel better, change diet over the past nine years, and change exercise levels over the next nine years, and change my relationship with caffeine and nicotine. You know, um, and I. Um, that's almost heresy to say at some meetings, you know, because these are our sacred cows. Um, if, you, if you smoke enough cigarettes, and, like one woman in Berkeley, her name is Vicki, she said when she used to feel tired, she thought that meant drink lots of coffee and smoke lots of cigarettes. <laughs> that's what tired, instead of why don't you go to bed. Uh, that never occurred to her. But it's true, a lot of us start, I, I, when I was, and on that also I'd like to say this is an easy does it. This isn't a rush into perfection. This is, if you notice that these things no longer work for you, you know, you might want to make a change. If they still work for you, geez, suck them dry. <laughs> Just suck them dry. I'm, take it to the max. I mean, I, I have never made it, I have never made a change because I thought it seemed like a good idea. <laughs> I make changes because there are no alternatives, you know. When I was teaching, uh, I got to the point where I taught on the third floor and I could not walk up to the third floor without stopping for air, you know, which is a sign. You know, that maybe I could cut back a little, you know, switch brands. You know. <laughs> oh, so allergies. Um, a word or two on relationships? <laughs> One thing I'd like to make mention of is, and it's in the book, I mean, this is another topic we never talk about in meetings. Um, it says on page 69, which should be an easy page to remember, <laughs> we all have sex problems. In my copy, it's underlined. Okay. We all have sex problems. But we really don't talk about these things, and that's why a lot of us figure we're the only ones who get a little bizarre on occasion. Um, and, and a lot of people find a lot of dissatisfaction in this area, and it's real hard. Culturally, it is very hard to talk about, and this is why if you have a sponsor or someone you can trust a lot, this is a good thing to talk about sometimes, at least with one person occasionally, to get it out. We had a class 
taught, I guess, two years ago now at the University of California on uh, alcoholism and sexuality. You know, wow, what a topic. So uh, I signed up, you know, <laughs> and I found <clears throat> this is part of our, that you get a counseling, a certified alcoholic counselor or something, you can take all the kinds of courses. So I took the class, and in the class there were 40 of us, <clears throat> and of the 40, like 35 were in 12-step programs. And there were five people who were just there because they were goody-two-shoes, you know. They were just interested in helping their fellow person. You know, I, I hated them. <laughs> I've never trusted altruism, you know. <laughs> anyway, um, of the group, we had, uh, of the 40 people, I guess we had six men in the room and all the rest were women. Uh, I, I'm 38, I was 37 then. There may have been two or three of us in our 30s. The rest were in their 40s and 50s, large number, and some in their 60s. Um, the number of marriages in the room was phenomenal. Okay, just multiply 40 by 7, you know, and you got about the number of marriages. <laughs> large number of children, large number of, of sexual activity and experience. And we found out that we really knew very, very little about sexuality. It's like you come to the program thinking you're an expert on alcohol, you know, and you find out you don't know nothing. <clears throat> the woman that taught the course was uh, disabled. She um, uh, had a cerebral palsy, I think. And it was, she was birth defect. She was delivered wrong. And she had a spastic hand and a spastic foot. And... Um, uh, used a cane to get around. She, she was in her 30s also. Her name was Susan. And she was an adult child of an alcoholic. And anyway, as we would talk around the room, it was kind of interesting. There was a lot of information given to us. We had to read some books on male sexuality, on female sexuality. Um, a lot of us came into the room with a lot of attitudes like, you know, sex is dirty, but babies are beautiful. You know, let's, let's, and let's not talk any more about it, you know. It's a beautiful thing. <laughs> Uh, which means let's not talk about it, you know, and, and, but just, and she said, you know, instead of talking about the rights and wrongs and shoulds and musts and quoting from lots of the ancient documents, let's just take a look at what people do. Okay, what people, you know, how intimidating, what, what people, you know, which group? Well, let's just <clears throat> look across the board. Susan, uh, a few things that we did learn, uh, and, and we all, in the group, um, there was, at lunch is the time that we shared together, and, and I found some of that to be real intimidating. The first, we broke up into groups, and our first conversation was <coughs> on uh, what were the sexual attitudes in your home when you grew up? You know, were your parents openly affectionate? Uh, did they never touch when the kids were around? Was matters of sexuality discussed? I mean, what were the messages given? And most of it, I mean, my mother's Swedish Lutheran and my father's Irish Catholic, and I should answer all your questions um, about, you know, freedom and, and equality in the home. Uh, all kinds of, of attitudes on uh, women's roles and men's roles. I mean, in our society, it is presumed that the man knows something, or he's not a man. And it's presumed that the woman knows nothing, or she's not a lady. And it's very interesting when those two meet. <laughs> because frequently it's just the other way around, you know. She is far more aware of her body than he is. And, and you know, people who've been married for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years have never talked about what's pleasurable or not pleasurable 
or what works or what doesn't work, or I'd like to tell you that's driven me crazy for 30 years, you know, just to say that, or that just doesn't help at all. Uh, simple giving of information. We also learn that, in, you know, our, our sexual attitudes are so powerful, um, we just presume that sex and sexuality is for teenagers and people in their 20s. You know, and beyond that, we should be embarrassed, you know, being sexual. Um, or, um, see, how can I phrase it? I'm blank on that point. And I see it. Isn't that frustrating? You can see it and the words don't come. Um, blocking, we call it. <laughs> ah, there, there are whole groups that we just presume have no sexuality at all. Susan was real interested in, in this because being a handicapped person, one of the society norms is disabled people have no sex or sexuality. And she said this is why when she was growing up as a young woman, her parents, who were very educated people, gave her very strong messages that she could be a professional person, she could be a counselor, she could be a teacher, she could be a millionaire, but they never told her she could be a mother or a wife because she's disabled. I mean, who would want to see someone with a spastic hand be sexual? And she said, go into a veteran's hospital sometime and look around there. And the supposition is that none of those paraplegic or quadriplegic men have sexuality. Because they never have privacy or an opportunity to be sexual with anyone. And the fact of the matter is that's simply wrong. She also, a little, I mean, approaching it all from a disabled point of view, I, I go to hospitals on some occasions and she said, just one, one thing, when you're talking to someone in a wheelchair, would you sit down? Because otherwise you're talking like this to a child. If you sit down, you're talking as equal. Well, that never occurred to me, and I hung out in hospitals for years. Um, anyway, we found uh, we had lots of ignorance, and this was one of the areas where a lot of us figured, you know, asking questions and reading some books and finding out about ourselves and how we work and how other people work and what tolerance levels are and what society norms are, are is real important information, and a lot of us never talk about it. So I found the class real liberating just for the sake that we started talking about things that we usually never talk about, you know. But usually are so obsessed about we can't think of anything else. You know, we're thinking about that and talking about something else. Makes life odd. Um, relationships, however. Here is how some of us have relationships. <clears throat> if you identify, you know, just mark it in your heart. <laughs> we are into short-term gain. Short-term gain, followed by long-term pain. Okay, all right, got that, got that relationship. Short-term gain, long-term pain, followed by what? Disillusionment. I'll never do that again. God, that was awesome. If you ever see me talking to anyone like that again, shoot me. You know. Uh, God, I've learned my lesson this time. He was a creep. Uh, I shall never deal with women again. <laughs> disillusion. That, all right, so short-term gain, long-term pain, disillusionment, <sighs> awful, followed by anxiety, discomfort, edgy. What do I need? I need some short-term gain. <laughs> because I can't handle the discomfort, you know? 
and followed by long-term pain, followed by disillusionment, followed by anxiety, and, and we call these relationships. Um, it's kind of interesting if you, you look around and you see what a lot of people consider to be love. Um, and this is usually in terms of short-term gain. You wander into a party and you see someone and, and your breath is taken away. I mean, and all of a sudden you start feeling your pulse go boom, 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 boom. And your heart is just exploding in your chest and your blood is rushing and you know that sex with this person will be so stunning that pigeons will fly out your ears. <laughs> you know that. You conclude, then you conclude, this is real, you know, and you go for it. And you spend an evening together, or you spend a week together, or you spend a month together, or you spend a year together, and for a while it is just instant sensation, followed by long-term pain. You know, the person is a creep. It doesn't work, you know. Um... Some of us are real addicts in that area, and we think that when the pulse starts rushing and the heart starts pounding and you can't breathe, that that's a wonderful sign. May I suggest that uh, that's a bad sign? It's a warning? Uh, a friend of mine is a shrink, and he was going through a lot of things with this with women he was involved in, and he was in therapy for it. And, and he was talking about, you know, all these, 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 these relationships always started so wonderfully and they ended so tragically over and over and over again. And his shrink said, all right, the next time you walk into a room and you see that woman who stuns you, you know, and you just, he says, don't even say hello to her. Don't even, she said, she's like a drink to you. She's a drink with two legs. He said, instead, look around the room for someone who to you seems to be a little dull. Walk up to her and say hello. And have a conversation and see if you can exchange words. And if you can, ask her out. And ask her out for ten times. And each one of those times have the only object of your association being conversation and at the end of those ten times see if this person is someone you would like to start building a relationship with that's impossible you know well what it is is reversing this short-term gain long-term pain reverse it to um, short-term pain followed by long-term gain we don't even think of that. I mean, like those of us, um, I can hardly say those words. Because it's just so, again, I mean, I know some people who pull themselves out of bed every morning and exercise for half an hour. Short-term pain. And they feel great all day. Long-term gain. I can do it two days in a row. <laughs> and then the thought of, I would much rather have the short-term gain of sleeping a lot and eating everything on the plate and the long-term pain of being 700 pounds and not being able to move. <laughs> you know, I mean, that, that's uh, reversing the pattern with, with short-term pain, the asking someone out who seems a little dull, 
you know, and spending time to get to know each other, becoming friends, having some kind of relationship, followed by a long-term gain, uh, that's the way that most healthy people lead their lives. And a lot of us haven't done that because we didn't know you could. <laughs> you mean people can do that? You really can. Uh, but it's also on this relationship business. A lot of us figure, gee, I'm six months sober, I better get in a relationship, you know. Well, now, I'm, now that I'm a year clean and sober, uh, I should have my relationship. I think, between you and me, that uh, there are far more important issues to deal with in the first several years of sobriety than having a relationship. I think uh, self-respect and job and some financial amends to make and stuff like that is far more significant than finding your perfect lover. And, you know, that first year of sobriety is real early, so is the second, so is the third. But I know a lot of us compare ourselves because we're in the program now for five years and we haven't yet found the perfect person and we consider we're failures. We are enough. We are whole people. A relationship, by the way, is not the goal of life. Relationship is a vehicle. It is a vehicle to help you live a happy and productive life. And some people need that vehicle and some people don't. Friendship, yes. So having a relationship with capital R, you know, the real one. <laughs> some people are, I mean, we are whole. Two sick people don't make a whole person. And a lot of us figured that was too. If I'm real neurotic and I'm with someone who's real neurotic, we'll be real well. It doesn't work. You'll be real neurotic. So it's another area of very strong, easy does it. Easy does it. And we had to give newcomers a mantra in Southern California sometimes, because they would come to meetings in heat, you know, and you could just tell you'd sit next to them and start to, you know, tan. Uh, they were so white. <laughs> and we'd have them repeat this, this if I don't get laid tonight I'm not gonna die <laughs> we'd have them repeat that over and over and over again so they could start focusing on things they could have something to do with like you know starting to wash regularly uh, finding where the laundry was uh, eating, getting your diet back into some kind of shape, getting some kind of, of self-esteem, finding a J-O-B, you can't use the word, you know, for some people for a while, spell it, a J-O-B that pays your B-I-L-L-S. Uh, and and the, once those things start to get taken care of, you can, and you get some kind of wholeness and togetherness here, then you are an apt candidate to form an intimate relationship with somebody. And until then, you're 14 years old playing. I think relationships are for adults, and I think that's one reason why we need to be cautious about these things. Also, I think there's that rule that is, uh, you know, don't get involved with a newcomer. I think some of us think that that's to protect the newcomer. <laughs> You know, who have lived a fairly normal life for now four, five, or six years, and all of a sudden you get involved with a newcomer, and you're as crazy as that person is very soon. We get very vulnerable. Newcomers are charged with God's grace, believe me. If those of us that figure we have the program wrapped up, to go out and have a cup of gin to deal with this problem. Okay. So it's, it's for our own protection. You know, who, I mean, oh, God. Anyway.
Um, that's on relationships. Um, also, and this is on, on the feeling level, um, anger and, and rage are with us a lot, especially in early sobriety. Like for me, for, for six months to 18 months, I, that was my state. But I also found out, looking back, that I had a couple others um, that surprised me, and one of them is grief. Feelings of grief and feelings of sadness. And I didn't recognize this for a while because I didn't have any words for emotions anyway, but one of the things, I, when I came into the program, I went through a real mourning period. And the reason I was mourning was because I had lost my best friend, Bourbon. You know, and this was the one creature on God's earth that I loved most consistently for so many years. And it was suddenly gone. And I mourned that. And I went through all of the stages of grief that go with it. And, and as, as people go out of my life, as I change jobs, as I change places where I live, I find I grieve. And I don't like that. Greeting is not a comfortable feeling for me. I don't think it's a comfortable feeling for anybody. But I, I mean, it's another one of those things that we never talk about because you should get over those things. But mourning really takes time. And for a lot of people, it's nine months to a year there's been a significant loss. But sometimes more than that. If, if someone close to you dies, your sponsor dies, uh, someone you sponsor dies, a parent dies, um, a teacher you love dies, we go through mourning. And I, I found, um, reading some of the things by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross on death and dying has been real helpful to me in learning my own emotional process as I go through mourning and going through sadness because I didn't know how to be sad. You know, I mean, my, my days, you know, you know, smile of the world, smiles with you, cry and you cry alone. I mean, I never wanted to, to cry and so I just shoved all that stuff down. Um, and even in sobriety, I have yet in sobriety to cry for myself. I can cry watching movies. There's one movie, Ordinary People, <laughs> which I think should be, you know, must-seeing for anyone who's from a family. Um, I, the first time I saw that, uh, the family was very wealthy, but other than that, they were just as neurotic as mine. And uh, I, I saw that film, and uh, halfway into it, I just started sobbing. And the next day, I went back, and when the title started, I started sobbing. And I just got a lot of grief out. In the book, on one of these pages here, I usually don't remember where it is. Ah, 83 and 84. They talk about the promises of the program. Now, before I doing the promises, I would like to talk, because the promises of recovery, I'd like to talk about our society's five rules. And uh, I, these are ironclad. I think they are more ferocious than anything ever church ever dreamed up. And I think they're killers. And most of us bring them right in with us to the program and, and they... Rule number one, you cannot have anything wrong with you. That's for starters. There's, uh, we, we don't like people who have things wrong with them. And look at advertising. Everyone there is perfect. And try, I was watching one thing last night. This woman had a pimple and was suicidal. What will fix me? You know, well, I mean, when people see that, they figure that's normal behavior. I think she has a little ego problem. Um, 
You can't have anything. Don't be too thin or too fat. Don't be too old. God forbid, don't be sick. You know? Don't be ugly. Don't, don't have crooked teeth. Don't have hair that's too short or too long. Sit in, wear this. Don't wear weird clothes. You can't have anything wrong with you. Don't have hair-brained opinions. Ah, don't say that. People will think you're crazy. <laughs> I mean, one of, for years I have read the Gallup poll trying to find out, find out if I was anywhere in the middle. I have missed consistently for years. I mean, I am right out on lunatic fringe on most issues. It's just <laughs> wonderful. Um, and I used to be real embarrassed about that, and now I just figure that you know, they're wrong. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, what's normal in your neighborhood? I mean, for, I'm in my area where I have chosen to live, uh, it's a very racially integrated area. We have lots of blacks and Hispanics and Asians and, you know, Anglos just, re uh, there's statistics saying we're the most integrated city in the United States. Um, and therefore, seeing racial mixtures, interracial couples, interracial children is very normal. Gay people and straight people mix very, very freely, old people and young people, and they're a handicap. There are all these rules. Uh, city streets have to be fixed so people in wheelchairs can get on. So we have a lot of disabled people around there. Um, this is an area that voted 85% Mondale Ferraro. You know? So I had just presumed that's normal. And I leave that area and visit other parts of the United States, you know, where everyone has a group cut, you know, including the women. And uh, uh, I kind of go into shock, you know, and I say, what's, what's wrong with them? You know? So I just, normal depends on the neighborhood you were born in, or at least you're living in, you know, what you, but in every one of those, you know, it still is, you can't have anything wrong with you from those norms. Don't get weird. Don't look different. Fit in. Rule number two, if you have something wrong with you, get over it fast. We like fast. We believe in fast. We're a culture of fast. Um, we see the most complicated situations in the world solved in an hour on television. And if you're raised on television, you've seen that every day for your entire life. And you presume that's normal, you know, where the most wild emotions get resolved, you know, in an hour. Or a week, you know. Um, so it, it gets kind of funny on that. Uh, if you have something wrong with you, get over it fast. Someone died, or you broke it up, an affair, or someone died, or you've lost a job. Well, snap out of it. Yeah. Come on now, we talked about that last week. <laughs> Rule three. If you can't get over it fast, pretend you did. This is where most of us are experts. You know? I think the three words that kill most alcoholics and Al-Anons are the words, just fine, thanks, with that grin. You know? How are you? Just fine, thanks. Because after all, you're five years in the program, you really shouldn't be suicidal. <laughs> Who do you tell you're suicidal? You tell your babies you're suicidal when you're five years... They'll think the program doesn't work. Ah! No, relax. They'll just think you're suicidal. <laughs> and if you talk about it, they'll identify with you. you know, and give you advice. The same advice you gave them when they were suicidal. You know, that's how it works. Um, a lot of us... You know, because we can't have anything wrong with it. We have to be graceful and charming and debonair and know the book. Um, we, we lie here. 
we pretend we live in that one day the world of hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is a feeling one thing and well, it's being one thing and doing something else. That's a little hypocrisy. If you're in pain, you're in pain. There is, I don't know whether it's a custom in Las Vegas. It's one that I see in some meetings, and I, I don't like it. Um, people are so sensitive to self-pity, you know, because we shouldn't feel sorry for ourselves. So some people from the podium will mention they've had just this really awful week, and everyone in the room goes, aww, I hate that. You know, I figure, please respect my pain, you know. And if you don't mock my pain, and I'm talking about my pain, which is real different from feeling real sorry for myself. But if I can't come here and tell you I'm in pain, where can I go? You know? Pain is real. And, and it, I, it, I, I saw it happen a, a little while ago, and I just cringed at, because um, it doesn't help me. You know? um, my sponsor can deal with my self-pity, although I do love self-pity also. I, mean, let me say, I, I think it's a great way of spending a weekend. <laughs> um, so, you can't have anything wrong with you. If you have something wrong with you, get over it fast. If you can't get over it fast, pretend you did. Rule four, if you can't pretend, get out. And some of us do that. Uh, Skid Row has 3% of us living on it. And, and also there are shopping bag people, you know, the bag people, bag women and bag men. They're just kind of mosey in, in cities, uh, you know, going from here to there with all their belongings in a shopping bag. <laughs> they live real simple, honest lives, you know, and I sometimes really envy them. I know why they've done it, because they don't want to deal with all this stuff that we deal with. Income tax and credit cards and answering the phone. You know, who needs that? That makes a life. They just drop out. And there are thousands and thousands of people who do that. Um, but rule five applies to the rest of us who don't drop out. Rule five is this. If you won't drop out, at least have the decency to look ashamed when you're around the rest of us. So you come into group feeling, uh, my name is Tom and I'm so sorry. Um, <laughs> I should be a better person, I should be working a better program, I should have taken a better fifth step, I should have prayed more last night, I know I'm inadequate, I haven't looked at the book in a week, and I, you know, and I, so I just keep on apologizing, and you stand in the back of the room, hoping that no one recognizes you, and if you don't take up much space, can I stay, you know? Well, uh, I think those five rules are killers, and I see them practiced all over our society, you know? Um, <laughs> if, if you are very optimistic and emotionally well put together and rich and white, this is a wonderful society for you. But if anything doesn't quite match that, you better pretend a lot, you know, and look good. That's fine, thanks, you know. And, and we don't know what to do with people who are chronically ill. We don't. We don't know what to do with long-term depression with people who've been sober for a while. People go, and Bill Wilson went into a major depression after he'd been sober forever. Went to see a shrink on a regular basis. Also, nibble Snickers bars all day long. <laughs> I would suggest a connection. Uh, that wonderful drug sugar. Uh, but we, I mean, we, we like a nice neat packages as a culture, and we don't know what to do with people who aren't tightly wrapped. 
And I think that even comes into Alcoholics Anonymous, where, we, where our tolerance can be very short for people that don't look good. My patience gets real short with people that don't conform to my standards. I mean, anyway, to contrast that, I would like to talk a little bit about the promises. And it says this on page 83. If we are painstaking about this phase of our development, we will be amazed before we are halfway through. I think that's the first promise, to be amazed again. Most of us come into the fellowships that Al-Anon or Alcoholics Anonymous burned out, cynical, and we have not been impressed or amazed in years. You know, prove it. All of a sudden, you start associating with the fellowship, and you notice the sunset. And you turn to your sponsor and say, has that been going on all this time? <laughs> or all of a sudden, you discover that birds don't shout, they sing. <laughs> I think those are, ama- I mean, it's, you suddenly, you get amazed. Or you suddenly realize that it's been three months since you have been actively self-destructive. And you get amazed. Or you see this degenerate come into the room and open his or her mouth and speak exactly what's going on inside your own soul. And you're amazed. I think it's the first promise. And it comes right around here in times of amends. Then says, We are going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. I didn't care. I was not interested in a new freedom and a new happiness. I just didn't want to drink again. We will not regret the past, nor wish to shut the door on it. Ha! We will comprehend the word serenity, and we will know peace. That sounded to me like a Hallmark card. <laughs> and it had nothing to do with my insides. Who cared? You know, I just didn't want to drink again. No matter how far down the scale we have gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. Okay, 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 I could see that. Um, if I was willing to talk about it, I mean, I see how it could help them, but I, 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 I was like me being real well and them being real sick, and I'd give them advice. That's how I saw that one. <laughs> that feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. I was horrified. <laughs> oh, don't take my uselessness and self-pity. <laughs> Those are my best friends, you know. And what I did best was feel useless and have self-pity. And, and they told, they threatened here that that would be removed. And I, I remember, in fact, I, the room I was in was on, on the 2910 Telegraph Avenue. When I suddenly heard those words for the first time, I envisioned um, that, that I was like this plastic bag filled with uselessness and self-pity and would all be drained out and there'd be nothing left inside. That was not attractive to me. I felt I would be an empty shell. Because I knew, I mean, I knew nothing would fill it up. You know, it was going to be awful. We will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. Self-seeking will slip away. Well, those two made me feel guilty because I should already have taken care of those, you know. So I had to pretend. 
Our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. I resented that. I didn't want anything to change. My attitude and outlook upon life I had fought for mightily. And they told me it was going to change, and I wasn't going to have anything to do about it, and I resented it. Fear of people and of economic insecurity will leave us. Sometimes that's heard this way. Fear of people will leave us, and so will economic insecurity. <laughs> Different. Um, there's kind of a thing where, where it, it's a heresy, um, where if you really practice this program well and are spiritually fit, you'll get rich. It's not true. It's not true. Um, this step says fear of people will leave us and fear of economic insecurity will leave us. You can still be economically insecure, you just won't be afraid of it. I mean, people who are, you know, sober three years and haven't made their first million dollars are convinced they need to take another fifth step. You know? <laughs> and it's just not true. I think you are a financial success if most, more, you know, most of the time you can pay your bills. I think that's great. Um, I, I have started subtracting better, but I use, I mean, last year I was still bouncing checks, and that's because I've never learned how to subtract. I was busy that year when they taught us subtraction. I was doing something else. You know. Far more important. And I don't always write down in the book, you know, uh, $100. You know, I just, ah. Because we, we associate rich with wonderful. You know. I associate rich with cocaine. <laughs> There's a, um, a bumper sticker in Berkeley that says, Cocaine is God's way of saying you make too much money. <laughs> It does, and the fear of people, I, I can still become very fearful of people when I don't know folks, I, but what I found I can do is, um, like coming to like a Canadian convention for me is very anxiety producing, um, because three things, first of all, it's too expensive always, second, I can't afford the time away, third, I won't know anyone there, those are the first three thoughts in my head whenever I... Now, this is even when I go to a convention in San Francisco and I don't know half the people there. You know, still, I won't know anyone there and it's too expensive when it's too far away. You know, it's across the bay. Oh, well, I don't want to go. Um, I really resist new and I really resist change. Um, but I found when I, I can say, well, I'm just afraid, just afraid, it's just fear, and I can go, and if I sit down and stay stationary for a while and watch faces, I feel at home. But the fear is there. I found out that fear comes up for me for a lot of reasons. And fear of people does leave me if I take certain steps, one of which is talking to someone one-on-one. -on -one. Fear of people leaves me. Or reaching out to touch somebody. Fear of people leaves me. Touching is a real important part of the program, I think. I used to, when I first started uh, coming to meetings, uh, I didn't understand. I mean, the sharing I liked a lot. I did not like the Lord's Prayer at all. But I would stay to the end of the meetings to hold hands because this was touching someone and I just I was skin hungry and I needed to be touched desperately and didn't know how now what does a hub mean you know <laughs> uh, rigid uh, but it was important to be able to touch people and now I'm they did a study a few years ago on monkeys and 
they were all from the same, you know, background family-wise, and, and they had some monkeys in this cage with everything they wanted, and some monkeys in this cage with everything they wanted, and the only difference between the two groups was one group got touched a lot and the other wasn't touched at all, and the group that wasn't touched died. And they figured you need three to five hugs a day to stay healthy. And not little, you know, tight hugs, I mean, hugs. You know. Um, I think that's simply true. Well, it doesn't seem very manly. <laughs> There's a program for you. Okay. Um, let's see. The next promise is we will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. That's true. That, that was one of the first ones that started happening for me. And what I intuitively found out was this. If I was uncomfortable, I could leave. I never knew that before. Uh, this applies to parties, church services, family gatherings. If you're uncomfortable, you can simply leave. Um, and I always thought I had to stay to the end because something might happen. You know, someone wonderful might walk in, you know. That real funny stuff may go on in just a second. So I never knew I could leave before. Um, I, in, in, the, in the church situation, I have yet to make it through, uh, in my denomination, the big liturgical event is the Easter Vigil, which is uh, about two hours long and very dramatic, and you have baptisms and candles and all kinds of very high church stuff, and I have yet to make it through one of those. Um, I, I try to show up, and my anxiety gets so high, I just have to leave. <laughs> <laughs> so I always, there's one... There was a meeting in Los Angeles, it was a Saturday night meeting on Wilshire Boulevard, and I used to, uh, you know, the Easter Vigil would start, you know, and, and um, we'd start like at, at sunset, and uh, my, I would, boom, be able to make that meeting a little bit late, but I'd always make, you know, just Richard, and they would, you know, they would, they would time me coming in of how comfortable I was that year. You were a little late this year, Tom. <laughs> um, but I, uncomfortable situations, I can simply leave, and I don't have to make a big scene and tell everyone about it, or it's just... You know, my level of comfort becomes real important. This is true also for, like, the holidays. Remember those? We just got through them again. Um, some people have an awful time with the holidays. I find that my discomfort level starts on Halloween. <laughs> and it continues until towards the end of February. <laughs> uh, I, you, you intuitively figure some stuff out. And I found this was always just a real fragile time for me. And for 36 years, every February for me was a time of black depression. Just depression. And I, I could not figure this out. And it finally, that the 33rd time through, it occurred to me that I was having trouble with February. And I don't, I don't make those associations. Um, and February, as far as I'm concerned, is the longest month of the year. So what happened, I had to start taking a look at it and talk to people about it. And what happens is the earth goes through cycles. You know, you have spring and you have summer and you have winter and you have fall. And there are some cycles where the whole planet just bursts out in life. And there are some cycles where the planet shuts down and is dormant and everything goes interior. I do that too. I think lots of people do that too. And, and during that dark time, when it's dark and it's cold and it's rainy, I shut down. Uh, this is normal. And I found that starting around, there are only two nights of the year I'm afraid to leave the house. One is Halloween and the other is New Year's Eve. For, for some reason, there is a fear that I, I become very 
clumsy and odd and weird on those two nights, and I'm very uncomfortable and don't know what to do regularly. Um, and I, you know, what to do about Christmas, and should I show up to the family, and I just can't stand it, and all this pressure, and grinning at people I can't stand. Well, what I finally found out was this, after one particularly awful Christmas. Um, I only have to participate to the degree that I am comfortable. And if I don't want to go home for Christmas dinner, I don't have to. But you only live an hour away. <laughs> if I don't want to go, I don't have to. And, you know, a major truth can be said in less than three minutes. Mom, I'm not going to be able to make it. We'll be so disappointed. You know, let them be disappointed. <laughs> um, so there were a couple of, like, four Christmases in a row I didn't go home. I did other stuff. In fact, one Christmas I went to the movies. <laughs> it was wonderful. Um, and I, I, you know, uh, what about sending Christmas cards out? You don't have to send Christmas cards out if you don't want it. I haven't sent Christmas cards out in years. Last year, I bought them for the first time in years. I didn't send them out. <laughs> but I bought them. And next year, I may send them out. I thought the last couple of Christmases, I've, I've returned home. In fact, I've had it. It almost hurts to say this. The last couple of Christmases have really been wonderful. You know? But there were a couple there that were just awful. And I just, what about going to all the Christmas parties? I don't go. I, just, I mean, even with all AA people having... I, I just get weird. Um, uh, New Year's Eve, dances. I mean, everyone should go to a big area dance. I tried this um, two New Year's Eves ago. I figured, gee, I was eight years older and I should, you know, I should be well enough now. So I picked a friend of mine up at the airport in San Francisco, and uh, we were going to this dance in, in uh, San Francisco, and, and she and I were waiting outside, waiting to step, and all of a sudden I just became paralyzed with fear. I couldn't go in. Because I wouldn't know anybody there. It's too expensive. You know, that tape ran. And, and, uh, and I, I turned to her and said, let me take you home. And we took her home, went to my house, and I was in bed alone by 11 o'clock at night. And uh, uh, asleep by 11.30, New Year's Eve, and woke up the next morning feeling a little embarrassed and alive. And I've learned to respect that. And that's okay. And uh, um intuitively knowing how to handle situations which used to baffle us. I, this is true, for, especially for those of us in Al-Anon. I think one of the things we need to do is have at least one picture of Abraham Lincoln somewhere in our house. And underneath that picture, write these words. Over 120 years ago, President Lincoln freed the slaves. <laughs> Pass the word. Because there's a lot of this social convention that is awful and very uncomfortable, and why go through it? Um, so I'm a big fan of Lincoln. Here is another intuitive way of handling situations. You have to And this is my experience, and if it helps you, please use it. It's this. If it's after 11 o'clock at night and it seems like a good idea, it's not. <laughs> My experience. Um, always carry a watch. <laughs> uh, let's see. 
And the last promise, we will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. This is the first promise that came true for me. This is how it occurred to me that God was involved in my life. Because I was seven or eight or nine or ten months sober and realized at that point that my obsession to drink and use had been removed. And I didn't do it. And God was doing for me what I could not do for myself. That's God's job, by the way. <clears throat> That's what God does best. There, there is a, an Americanism that says, um, God help those who help themselves. I don't think that's always true. I think God helps those who ask for it. Because the time when I most intensely needed God's help, I could not help myself. I was just paralyzed. Inside, just paralyzed. And, and to come to believe that a power greater than myself can seriously affect my life is a real freedom of the program. And I think if your relationship with your higher power is your primary relationship, everything else falls into place. It's not Fred or George or Sally. You know? It's your higher power. Because that's your source. And then you can use a lot of other things as a vehicle. Um, the channels change. The source remains the same. It's 10 o'clock. I think we should break for an hour and come back at 11, and at 11 I want to say a couple of things about amends, real brief because I don't have a lot to say about amends, and then I want to talk about prayer and meditation and God's will, and I'll give you the secret to the meaning of life. Okay? <laughs> Why don't we end with the Lord's Prayer?